Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. Hello, listening audience, and welcome to South Beach Sessions, hosted by Dan Lebetard. Every week, it's a long-form interview with a unique guest telling their story. And recently, it's become a means of introducing you to the fine people that Metal Arc Media is partnering up with and bringing into the fold. Going to go back to our roots here and have just a fun interview in which Dan lays out and lets Tim Kirkchen and Mike Schur recently announced joining Metal Arc Media, also showrunner extraordinaire. We leave them to just geek out over 1990s baseball and even older baseball. These are two of the most passionate baseball fans you've ever heard, and we just wanted to get them in a Zoom room together and let them geek out, and geek out they did. We finally got this audio cleared. You've heard about it. Here it is, the release of the South Beach Sessions featuring Tim Kirkchen and Mike Schur. Before we get into it, though, please, may I remind you to subscribe to this feed if you're enjoying it, the Levitard and Friends feed. If you subscribe to that, you get all the fine podcasts that the Levitard and Friends Network puts out, including Mystery Crate, Supodity, and the Jim Brockmeyer podcast, which I executive produce. Shout out to Chris Whittingham, who helped with this edit, has been helping us along the way with some of these South Beach sessions as well. Here it is, Tim Kirkchen and Mike Schur geeking out over baseball. Mike, make the argument on behalf of what you believe to be the best defensive play ever. The best defensive play, because I think Kevin Mitchell running into foul territory and catching a ball with his bare hand, the wrong hand, I don't know how it happened. He had the glove in the other hand, but he ran into foul territory. It's what I think of. I think of Jim Edmonds uh, going straight back in center field, but best defensive play ever. Those are, I've got recency bias. You nominate what? Okay, well, the greatest defensive play in baseball history is the ball that hit Canseco's head and went over the fence. That's right. the greatest. It's not the best, but it's the greatest. <laughs> the The best defensive play I think I've ever seen actually happen is the Edmonds catch in center. I was actually watching that game, and I couldn't believe what I had seen. But I think that there there was a ball, and I, I don't know the game, but there was a ball hit wide of third that Machado glove deep in foul territory and threw sidearm to cross his body all the way to first and got the guy. This was maybe two years ago. And, you know, he does that once a month in a way that is astonishing. But uh, that kind of play, that play specifically, the ball pulled down the third baseline that the third baseman has to throw back to first falling into the dugout is my my personal favorite defensive play. Machado does it. Arenado does it once a month too. But Machado, when he was at his peak playing third, he, I think, does it better than anybody. So that in terms of like a kind of play, the actual specific play, I would say, is the Edmonds catch. The kind of play that I personally love the most is that third base ball in foul territory throwing across his body to first. Tim? Well, first off, on the Canseco play, I was watching it live. And after the game, I called Jeff Houston, who was the teammate of Canseco, 
And he very dryly said, the World Cup is coming to Dallas this year. Jose was just getting ready. He was working out. <laughs> he headed it over the fence. The Edmonds play is certainly in the top three. I know it's a cliche now, but the Ozzie Smith play was even better than Kevin Mitchell's because it was a harder hit ball. It was behind him, meaning he couldn't even get a look at it. And he's diving while he's fielding it. So that was better than Kevin Mitchell, even though Mitchell's play was ridiculous. And I called Terry Kennedy after the Mitchell play. And he said, never seen anything like it. He should have torn the cup off the ball with his teeth and thrown it into the stands. That's how great that catch was. (laughs) Andy Chavez made a catch against the Cardinals in the playoffs, I want to say 2004, and they ended up losing that game. So it's the greatest catch. He went over the left field fence, and I've never seen a better play by a left fielder than that. But last one, Gary Matthews Jr. Oh, my God, this is still the best play I think I've ever seen. Gary Matthews Jr., center field in Texas, ran back, jumped over the fence, turned his glove in a certain way, and made a catch that I'll still never believe. So those yeah. are right at the top of the list, but I think infield and outfield have to be in different categories. I'll take Ozzy and Gary Matthews Jr. Two things to say about that. Number one, the Ozzy Smith plays better than the Mitchell play because Mitchell made a bad read on the ball, and so he had to grab it with his hand. Ozzy Smith dove for what was going to be a ground right over the bag, and then the ball took a bad hop, and so it was purely his reaction. The second thing is the Gary Matthews catch where he scaled the wall and did a 360 that single catch earned him about $60 million. So that's probably the most valuable defensive play (laughs) that anyone has ever made purely in terms of what his contract was after he, because I think he was a free agent that year, but if he wasn't, he was given more money than he was worth at the time, basically because of that catch. And not to belabor this, but the Willie Mays catch in the 54 World Series, Bob Feller told me, not that great a catch, not that great a catch. It's Willie Mays. We all knew he was going to catch that. He had a lot of center field to run down. So typical Bob Feller. He didn't – actually, he was complimenting Willie Mays, saying we knew he was going to catch that. That's how great Willie Mays was. Can you answer me this, Tim? There's an apocryphal story I think is apocryphal, which is that after that catch – the Giants reliever came into the dugout and sat down and said, well, I got my guy. Have you ever heard that? (laughs) (laughs) No, I haven't. That is beautiful. Yeah, I've heard that a couple times. I got the guy out? Is that what he was saying? I got Vic Wirtz out? Yeah, I got got that guy. I got got (laughs) Wirtz. I hadn't heard that. It could be true, but I love it. Tim, I asked you the other day if Manny Ramirez was the best right-handed hitter ever because someone else told me the Cardinals have three guys who are better right-handed hitters than Manny Ramirez. So the best right-handed hitter ever, you told me it was a complicated answer. Well, it's complicated because the guy who said there are three Cardinals better included Stan Musial on the list. Of course, Stan Musial was a left-handed hitter, so I'm not sure how much we should pay to that guy for not knowing that Stan Musial hit left-handed. To answer your question, Dan, it's complicated because of the eras in which these guys play. So for me, top of my head, he's not better than Rogers Hornsby. He's not better than Jimmy Fox. And given the eras in which Aaron and Mays played, he's not a better hitter than either one of those two. Now, after that, we're in a discussion here with a lot of other guys, including Frank Robinson, Miguel Cabrera, tons of guys, Mike Piazza, but 
Ramirez is right there on that list. I mean, 996 OPS, I believe, for a right-handed hitter. There are like four right-handed hitters ever that have a higher OPS than Manny Ramirez. But for you, Dan, I sent this question to one of the great stat guys of all time. And here's what he wrote back to me. He said, right-handed hitters, career value, Manny Ramirez is 19th. And peak value, he's 22nd of all time. This is the danger of when you take the stats and take them sometimes a little bit too far. Manny Ramirez is the 22nd best right-handed hitter ever. There's something wrong with that list. Mike? I think, well, at the end of the day, it's going to be Trout in all likelihood, assuming that he doesn't fall off a table. Pujols' peak was better to me than than Manny's, but Manny also had a longer peak. Like, Pujols was done when he was 32, or not done, but he, he, he really fell off a table as soon as he went to California. So I remember watching Pujols at his peak with the Cardinals and all those great years they had and thinking that I had never seen a guy before where it seemed impossible to get him out. Like, he was the first hitter in my lifetime, I think, who seemed like he had no holes in his swing anywhere. And I didn't understand it because he was enormous and he hit with a closed stance and it didn't seem to matter what you threw him. He hit everything that was thrown at him. And that, that era, if you, this is the big debate, right? Is like, do you go by what are his three to five best years or do you go by the totality of his career? I think those three to five years, the pools peaked when he was 26 to 30 with the Cardinals is as good a hitter of from either side as I've ever seen. But I also remember he signs that 10-year contract that the Angels are still paying off. And almost immediately, his magic formula kind of disappeared. And his, his OPS goes down, I don't know, 100 points basically for the next three years until he's a league average hitter. And he's been a league average hitter since he was 34. So that's sad to me because that guy was so special in St. Louis. Manny, of course, Manny, who knows what kind of cocktails that guy was, uh, was stirring into his uh, personal power structure there but you know when he got traded to the Dodgers when he finally worked his way out of Boston and got traded to the Dodgers that year he lit up the National League for the last 60 games he was as good as he had ever been so I think you know Manny versus Pujols I'll take Manny ultimately for the entirety of his career but man was Pujols good like 28 29 30 year old Albert Pujols just unstoppable yeah, you could make a case his first 10 years were the best first 10 years of any player in history. That's how good Pujols was at that time. But like you said, Mike, Manny kept getting better into his 30s. He was a great hitter at 36. I mean, that's a fact. And then you look at his career average with his number of home runs, and the only ones who can match that average with over 500 home runs is Fox, Ruth, and Williams. That's the list that Manny Ramirez on. And Billy Ripken told me one year, he played with, with Manny in Cleveland, and three times in the month of September, the umpire had to tell Manny, that's ball four, you can go to first now. Now, there are two ways to look at that. Either he didn't want to walk in that situation because he knew he was going to hit a rocket, tear a hole nope. in the sky with his <laughs> next wing, or happening. he simply didn't know the count. And yet everyone I've ever talked to will tell you that Manny was one of the smartest hitters They've ever seen he had an absolute idea on every single at bat. So I asked around about this and a couple guys told me, you know, he gets so locked in. He doesn't know what he's doing up there except for seeing it and hitting it. That's how good Manny was. So they turned 
those three at bats when he didn't know it was ball four into something good for Manny. Okay, I have several things to say about Manny Ramirez being a Red Sox fan. Number one, he once hit a ball at Fenway where it was an inside pitch and he pulled his hands in so close to his body that he hit a home run down the line to left where the ball was actually slicing instead of hooking. Like, or, you know, every <laughs> single ball that's pulled by a right-handed hitter hooks and you have to wonder whether it's going to go foul. He got his hands so far inside the ball, the ball tailed to the right. <laughs> it started foul and went fair. I've never seen that before from any hitter. The second thing is, Manny Ramirez is the author of about five of the greatest baseball stories ever, <laughs> starting with the fact that when he, he was teammates with Chad OJ, O-G-E-A, on the Indians. And when he was, I think he was in the minors, or maybe he just gotten called up. When the, when the O.J. Simpson thing happened, he heard that the police were looking oh, for no. O.J. Oh, no. And he called Chad O.J. and said, are you okay? The police are looking for him. That's amazing. That, that's a Hall of Fame story. The other one is when he was a rookie, I think, or maybe a, I think he was a rookie. He didn't speak English very well. He went, he, they were in Milwaukee, and he took a translator and he said, I've always wanted to see a Harley, the Harley Davidson factory. So they went to see the Harley Davidson headquarters and he was looking at this motorcycle, this beautiful, enormous Harley Davidson motorcycle. And he's, and he was like, man, I, I wish I could buy this. And the translator said, you know, Manny, you, you can, you, you, you're rich. You can make, you can buy this. And he was like, really? And he, the guy said, yeah, I think it was like 60,000 or $70,000. He was like, oh my God. Okay, great. I'm going to buy this motorcycle. So they start to go through the process with the salesman of buying the motorcycle and they get to the end and Manny says, um, oh, I don't have my wallet. Can you give me $70,000? pay you back. And the guy says, no, I, I'm sorry, I can't. And he was like, oh, I'll have to come back later. That, I mean, that he hiding inside the wall at Fenway during a game, using the restroom behind the wall. That's a great one. He once played an entire inning in left field with the Red Sox with a water bottle in his back pocket because he forgot to take it out when he was drinking water in the dugout. <laughs> he that, that great catch he made where he scaled the fence and left and caught the ball and then kept running and high-fived a fan who was sitting in the front row of the left field bleachers. Like, the guy's the best. Like, uh, there are so many incredible Manny Ramirez stories. Those are... Those are my favorites, but I'm sure there's a thousand more that we'll find out someday. And remember, Manny was going to get traded from, uh, I mean, A-Rod was going to get traded from the Rangers to the Red Sox for right. Manny Ramirez. And then that deal fell apart and he ended up going to the Yankees for Alfonso Soriano. So the next spring, Manny sees A-Rod, who's now on the Yankees. He goes up to him and he says, God, A-Rod's great to see you. It would have been so great if you'd been with us this year. <laughs> recognizing that, Manny, you wouldn't have been with us this year because you would be on the Rangers. And, and as far as money, Manny did not have a good idea about money. <laughs> a clubhouse kid went to him once and said, uh, Manny said, I want you to go wash my car during the game and then just take some money out, out of the glove compartment and the guy opened the glove compartment there was ten thousand dollars in cash in there just sitting around and manny kind of didn't know any better and when they asked manny once where do you live in boston he said uh i, I don't know I, I don't know where it is i, I know how to get from the ballpark to my house but i can't tell you where it is <laughs> fantastic
I have a Manny Ramirez story for you in that vein because I did a magazine story on him and that big diamond in his ear, cubic zirconia, $40. He was very proud to say that. But he had a an agent, and he and his agent, right after he signed that big deal, the giant deal, he had an agent, and he was in the neighborhood that my parents live in, and he asked his agent, can I afford this house and his agent turned to him and said, Manny, you can afford the entire fucking neighborhood. Like, how do you not, how do you not understand? How do you not understand money that way? Uh, I also heard a story. I'm curious because you must have so many of these, Tim, the former president of the Marlins told us that Cabrera, when he was facing Clemens with the standing ovations in the world series and he gets brushed back. And then at 20 years old, he goes opposite field in a park where that didn't happen very often. Off of Clemens in a World Series, comes back to the dugout and legitimately has no idea who Roger Clemens is. Yeah, there there are a lot of those stories. I love Jay Bell, former Pirate shortstop, but he came in the clubhouse one day and said, I was watching that uh, home run derby on the air today on ESPN. Some guy from the Yankees just hit home run after home run. And somebody said... Mickey Manley goes, yeah, that was his name. Uh, Don Mattingly Mattingly swears that he had never heard of Lou Gehrig when he was breaking Lou Gehrig records as the first baseman for the Yankees and said as a kid he thought Babe Ruth was a cartoon character. I don't know if this is an urban legend, but Randy Johnson very early on, they were playing the Braves, and he saw all this Hank Aaron memorabilia and all these Hank Aaron records. This is, you know, like mid-80s or so, and said, um, is he in the lineup today? And <laughs> said, no, that's that's Hank Aaron. He, he doesn't play anymore. So there are all sorts of stories like this, and I think it's because these players aren't dopes like you, Dan, and you, Mike, and me. They were out playing. They didn't have time to be watching anything they were playing all the time, and I think that's the only way to look at it. You're the only person who maybe can definitively tell me if the Ricky Henderson, John Olerud story is true or false. No, that's apocryphal, apparently, even though it's the greatest story ever. If you don't know <laughs> it, Ricky meets John Olerud, second team he's been on. So he says to Olerud, hey, when I was in Seattle, I played with a guy who used to wear the helmet in the field all the time also. Mm-hmm. And John Olerud said, Ricky, that was me. Well, <laughs> apparently that's that's not true. I wish it was, but this is true. Ricky, of course, loved a standing ovation more than anybody. Nobody tipped his cap more than Ricky because nobody broke more records than Ricky. So Bobby Valentine swears it's true. Ricky breaks another record in New York. He gets a standing ovation, standing on first, tips his cap. Okay, now we're back to action. And the steal sign for Ricky, since he was Ricky, was just a simple clap of the hands. So he looks at the third base coach, and Cookie Rojas gives him a clap of the hands. Ricky tips his cap to the third base coach. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it worked with Ricky. There was there was nobody like him. If I'm not mistaken, the the origin of the rule of there's like an actual rule in baseball. It's like a hundred. It comes from 120 years ago where a guy got to first, stole second, and then there was a guy on third he didn't know what to do, so he stole first again. Do you know that story? And then they, they had to pass a rule that said you can only go in one direction on the bases. <laughs> it's like a, some ancient player 
Right. It was a million years ago. A friend of mine wrote a book, The Man Who Stole First Base, and I think it was revolved around that guy. I covered a game in Oakland one day. This is, I want to say, 87, 88. Frank Robinson was the manager of the Orioles, and Frank didn't have much patience. But they're playing the A's, and Frank tells his players before the game, if Ricky gets on first in the first inning, just let him steal second. <laughs> Just let him steal third. We can't throw him out. The only thing bad's going to happen is you're going to throw it in the center field or you're going to throw it in the left field. So he threw, he stole second base and third base in the first inning without a throw. That's how good Ricky was. Frank just decided we're not good enough to throw him out. So initially they didn't give him a steal on either one of those because they were considered defensive indifference. And then finally they came to their senses and said, you can't punish him for being great like this. Frank Robinson thought he was so great we shouldn't even throw. That's how great Ricky was in his prime. I was the official scorekeeper for my son's travel baseball team's nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old league. And one of my favorite little acts of rebellion was to not give opposing players stolen bases when they stole. And when we didn't try to throw them, I would give them defensive indifference because the app that I was using allowed me to make that decision. Just an asshole. (laughs) The team wasn't very good. They lost a lot of their games. So anytime I could find a way to make the kids who look obsessively looked at their stats feel a little better about themselves. So the pitchers wouldn't have to look and see that over the course of the, of the 25 game season, they allowed 75 stolen bases. That was my way of trying to pad their stats, at least by not making it seem like they were the worst uh, team in the league. So in the early eighties, the SID at Navy, great guy was the official scorer for a Navy baseball game between Navy and Nebraska, or it was an NCAA game played at Navy. And it was one of those bizarre games where all the runs in in an inning were unearned because an error was made with two outs. But when a new pitcher comes in, After the error is made, the earned runs are against him personally, but not against the team. It happens like once a year, maybe. So like a dope, because I don't have anything else to do with my life. I knew this rule, and I went to the SID, who had never met me before, and he screamed at me. Who are you? How dare you come up to me? I'm the official scorer. I'm the SID, and you're telling me about earned runs and unearned (laughs) runs, and you don't even have it right. Well, I had it right. Not like it mattered. And I ended up becoming really good friends with him. And he apologized to me once he figured it out. (laughs) Mike, how do you feel when you hear uh, what Tim had to say earlier about the distortion of the numbers and the analysis and the idea that somebody can make Manny Ramirez in his prime the 22nd best right-handed hitter in the sport? Uh, One of the things I admire about Tim is he actually evolved. He wasn't stubborn. He actually took the time to learn all of the new measurements. Where are you? with the way the game has been measured to death and all of a sudden we have math for everything. Do you embrace it or do you think it's gone too far like Tim does? Well, I mean, it depends on what you mean by gone too far. There is absolutely no reason to continue to try to better analyze anything, not just baseball, but anything in the world. Like I I don't have a lot of patience for people who complain about this stuff because you don't have to use it if you don't want to. There is, there is an option, right? You can go to the game like you always have, eat a hot dog like you always have, and watch and enjoy baseball like you always have. I mean, the analysis is there for you to use if you want it, and, for, and it's, it's the way that 
front offices now work. Now, the only the only way that it has intruded into the actual game is the sort of really intense analysis based on pitching and spin rate and all that sort of stuff, which has led to every team in the league having six guys in their bullpen who throw 98 and are essentially unhittable. And then on the other side, on the focus on launch angle and and all that sort of stuff for hitters, those two things have collided and have led to what we now have, which is a three true outcome sport. It is home runs, it's walks, and it's strikeouts. And so I now have a tiny bit of sympathy, I would say, for people who don't want to engage in this kind of analysis because the actual gameplay has been affected. For a long time, the gameplay wasn't really affected. You could watch a game and not have any idea that the way that the players were being analyzed was markedly different from the way it had been 20 years ago. That's not true anymore. So I do have a little bit of sympathy for baseball fans who just want to watch. The the beauty of baseball to me really is that it's the game where the most different number of things can happen in any given moment. There are 2 million things that can happen at any given moment. And a lot of those things have been whittled away. It started with things like stolen bases. Nobody tried to steal anymore because you have to steal at a basically 75 or 80% rate to have it help your team. Even Ricky Henderson in many years didn't steal at that rate. And then there were things like hit and run that went away because it's, it's, you only ever remember the hit and runs that are, that work. You don't remember the 700,000 times that the guy swings and misses and the guy gets thrown out. So what this analysis has done is it, it has pared away. It's trimmed the hedges of what is possible in any given moment because nobody tries to do stuff like that anymore. So yes, I feel uh, the pain of people and I have some of that pain. I have some nostalgia for an era of baseball as recently as say 15 or 20 years ago, where the number of possible outcomes at any given moment in baseball games seemed more varied. But even given that, as Tim is very fond of saying, you always see things in baseball games that you've never seen before. It still has the possibility to create insane moments. There was that in the Tony, uh, Jose Bautista, I almost said Tony Bautista, in the Jose Bautista bat flip playoff game against the Rangers, couple of years ago, which was a truly wonderful game. That whole mess started in earnest when Russell Martin tried to throw a ball routinely back to his pitcher and the ball hit the bat of the guy who was standing in the batter's box and rolled away and a runner came home from third and scored and they had to look it up and they were like, well, nope, there's a rule for this. It's in play and the guy gets to score. So you still get insane things like that happening all the time. It's just that you now have to wade through more kind of boring stuff. You have to wade through more strikeouts and more walks and there's less there's fewer times per game on average and per season where you see a lot of juicy interesting stuff. And so I I had zero sympathy for that argument for a long time. I now have a little bit of sympathy for it and I actually feel it myself to some extent and I and I don't know how to fix it because once analysts have come up with better ways to analyze things and maximized value you don't go the other way. Nobody's going back the other way. And I don't think this is a thing that baseball can fix necessarily, but it's not, it's not going the other way. It's only going to become more like this unless they really do something significant and kind of shake up the way that the, the gameplay happens. Right. And I'm a, the son of a mathematician. My dad was a PhD uh, in math, undergrad MIT. So I love the numbers and give me more numbers. I just object occasionally when a team hires a rocket scientist to do a study on exit velocity. And among his findings, he said that Tony Gwynn was not a great hitter. He was a lucky hitter, 
because his exit velocity wasn't up there with some of the best hitters that we have measured. So that means Tony Gwynn got lucky 3,100 times in his career. He was a freaking magician. And if you all you had to do was watch him to understand exactly how great he was, and I watched him play like nobody else. For a five-year period, he hit 335 when he had two strikes on him. For a five-year period. Uh-huh. The only guy who hit that high using all his strikes was Mike Piazza. That's how good he was. And this is, again, the objection, especially when it comes to defense. Joey Gallo, I love Joey Gallo. He's big. He's strong. He can run. He can really throw. He's an above-average defensive outfielder. And yet last year he had the highest defensive run saved of any outfielder, which implies he's better than Byron Buxton, Mookie Betts, all those guys. And he's not. I'm just saying, we still – have to watch the games. You have to trust your eyes ultimately. Read the numbers, use the numbers, but don't forget to watch the game. Yeah, there's a, a sort of weirdly similar thing that happens in the TV world now because the, now the now that everything is streaming, this is not a a, a, a direct analogy, but it but it's their cousins. Now that everything's streaming, people have data based on a lot more good information about what people actually watch. Right? Like it used to be that you know. 5,000 people across the country had these boxes and they would manually input, you know, I watch this show at this time or whatever. And now the data is all going through computers. And so they can, they know exactly, Netflix knows exactly how many minutes of every show everybody has watched. And as a result, decisions are getting made on what shows to, to make and what shows to keep and what shows to cancel that are based on a certain set of numbers that are maximizing the profit of the companies, they think who are airing them. And the problem with that, there were many problems with it, but one of the problems is they're killing good shows. Like there's really good shows that have, have real value to the world that are well acted, well made and well produced and that are interesting and that a lot of people like, but if they're not liked in the same way that other shows are, or in the same amount that other shows are based purely on literal minutes of viewing, then the shows get canceled. And if you're, you know, again, it's not a direct analogy because TV isn't a zero-sum game. Every TV show doesn't have a winner and a loser or something in the same way that baseball does. But if you're running a TV network or a streaming site and your goal is to try to entertain people and you only look at the metric of what is what are the most people watching the most, then you're missing out, right? You're missing out on some other reasons why your network might be good. Among them, off the top of my head, when these shows that are really good that are really beloved, especially in the creative community, get killed and get you know wiped away because they didn't quite hit some metric, well, that sends a message to other creators and other actors. They're like, well, that stinks. Like, I don't like that that place killed this particular show. And they might be, in theory, less likely to bring their next show to that place. And so there are these like halo effects where if you only look at sort of data and you only use data to describe what your particular organization or team or network looks like, well, you might maximize profit and you might maximize potential winning and losing, but you're also missing other parts of the story. Now, the counter argument also is that Rafael Palmeiro once won a gold glove for first base in the AL when he was basically a DH and I think had played 21 games at first or something. And so it doesn't work to only do the other thing. You know, it doesn't work to only only trust your eyes or only let people vote who, uh, because then people get awards on reputation alone. Jeter won gold gloves when he shouldn't have. I like to bring that up every time I, 
uh, talk in public. Jeter was not as good a defender <laughs> as, as his reputation. So you can't just do it the other way. You can't do it only based on, you know, the, the, someone's reputation or, or using your eyes. But I think if you only use data at this point, you are not telling the whole story. By the way, Raphael Palmero once asked a writer friend of mine, how do you get an assist? So that, <laughs> well, you catch a ball and you throw it to somebody and an out is made, you get an assist as the first baseman. But interestingly, of course, you don't even have to get an out on the play in order to get an assist. If the pitcher drops the ball running to first base, that is scored assist three error one. So the first mm -hmm. baseman gets credit for making a play. I think baseball is the only sport where you actually get credit for something when an out is not made. Well, yeah, you get a credit for a strikeout if you're a pitcher, if the guy reaches first on the, on the drop third strike, which is how some pitchers have recorded four strikeouts in an inning. So you get, there's a lot of places the the actual statistics in baseball get real wonky in different places and people get credit for things that they shouldn't get credit for. Didn't a guy right. once strike out 28 guys in a game in the, in the minors or in college or something, you know, that story, Tim. Yeah. That, that guy was in the minor leagues. I'm going to remember his name here in a minute. Oh, God. He's going to, yeah, he's going to crush himself. If he doesn't remember the name, sure. He's going to, he's going to text me a week from now that he is still mortified <laughs> that he couldn't remember the name and that he's getting old and look at him, look at the look on his face right now, Mike, he's despondent because he can't remember the name of the guy who struck out 20 and now his head is in his hands yep. and he's, he's in physical pain because he cannot remember the name of the guy who struck out 28 batters in a game. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Mike, I need to change the subject so I'm not depressed for the rest of the, the podcast. <laughs> Tell me this, Mike. Tell me this. And Dan, you're in on this too. What is striking out the side? What exactly is that? Explain. I would say striking out the side is when you record three strikeouts in an inning. And I know what you're asking, which is, do, are you allowed to let anyone else reach base or do you have to strike out the only three hitters you face in that inning? That's what you're getting at? Yes. To me, striking out the side means you face three hitters and strike out all three of them. Okay, what is batting around? Batting around is when any player reaches base for the second time in an inning. So it's not the ninth guy uh, making the third out doesn't count. You have to have the 10th guy come up. Right. I think complete game shutout is redundant. Why are you if, yelling at us? Why why do yeah. you why do you insist on this rage being a part of our friendship? Yeah. I'm just asking Mike. You're I, saying is complete game shutout redundant? 
Yes. Walter yes. All you have to say is shut out. Yeah. Right. Walter Johnson threw 113 shutouts. He didn't throw 113 complete game shutouts. It's implied. Am I wrong about that? No, you, you can't record a shutout without throwing a complete game. So complete game shutout is ATM machine, but right. in baseball. Yeah. RBI or RBIs? I say RSBI just to be a oh, jerk. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that. You don't do that. Why? That's Why? just wrong. RSBI <laughs> is what you're saying. It's pathetic. That's why. What do you mean? Why can't you say that? Because it's pathetic. You know it is. That's the point. The point of saying it is to be a jerk and to point out that you are you know more than someone else about baseball. So that's why I do it. It's fun. I look at it like POWs. Okay, it's the same idea. RBIs. And you mean P? P-O-W's. Do you mean POW? <laughs> no, I say POWs. I don't say POW. Okay, sorry. Those are just tiny little pet peeves. And my last one, if I may, you guys will hate me. I don't care anymore. Uh, it's a glove. Okay. You wear a glove in the field unless you're a first baseman or a catcher, and then you use a mitt. Hmm. Glove has fingers, and a mitt does not. So it's a catcher's mitt. It's a first baseman's mitt. Everyone else uses a glove. I wish you'd calm down. I really do. I know. I feel threatened right now. Every time. He's coming at us so hard. We need security. Do you miss the bunt? Do either one of you miss the bunt? No. No, I do not miss the bunt at all. All right. Back when I cut, I, I don't miss the bunt for the most part because that is simply not the game we play today. When I covered the Orioles, Earl Weaver hated the bunt. Now, again, this is Earl Weaver who managed in the 60s, okay? And he hated the bunt more than anything. He used to tell me, look, we get 27 outs. We're not given any of them away. And the only thing that upset him more then one of his guys deciding to bunt is when the other team wanted to bunt and his pitcher would not throw a strike. And Earl would scream at his pitcher, they're giving us an out. Let them give us an out. That really upset him. I did a game in 86, Wally Joyner, height of his career, Wally World, everything, hitting third for the Angels. He bunted in the first inning of a game against the Orioles, 1986. And I love Gene Mock. I could tell you an hour worth of Gene Mock stories, but he was the manager of the Angels at that time. And I saw Earl the next day, and Earl says to me, and Earl's one of the three greatest managers of all time, if you ask me, but he says to me, he goes, that guy bunted in the first inning with his three hitter. He goes, that's why I could lose my next 800 games, and I'd still have a better record than that guy. That's <laughs> how much... Earl hated bunting that many years ago. So the people today have finally figured out in the game we play today, bunting is obsolete. The only exception to that is in his later years when Ortiz would come up and they pulled a huge shift on him before shifting happened in every single at bat. He would a few times a year just shorten up and just bunt a ball down the third baseline and just jog over to first. And I'm still curious why more guys don't do that against the shift, even once in a while, just to make the defense think about shifting as hard as they do. I think that if there's an answer to how to make the game more exciting, it may start 
with players occasionally doing stuff like that because it just keeps the defense honest and makes them and puts in the back of their minds the fact that they might do this. It might keep the third baseman a few steps closer to third or keep the shortstop more up the middle instead of playing essentially second base while the second baseman or the third baseman plays a softball short right field or something like that. The answer you always hear is the way to beat the shift is to hit it over the shift, not to hit it um, away from the shift. But but that is a thing that Ortiz used to do and it was pretty successful at it if I if memory serves. So I miss that. I miss guys taking advantage of the new system of defending hitters by bunting occasionally. And maybe that'll come back. I don't know. I mean, it, it's hard to imagine that being league wide. And it's it's also hard to imagine it really affecting anything. But I guess really the point of this whole thing is that the guy who struck out 27 guys in the game was re- named Ron Nachai. <laughs> 28, 28 guys. <laughs> and I was going to ask that. I was going to end by asking Tim that again <laughs> and send him careening into a spiraling depression. Last question. Wait, Tim, wait, hold on, hold on, Tim. Well, who was the guy? And I actually don't know this. Who was the guy? Babe Ruth once started a game as a pitcher walked a guy the got into a fight with a home plate ump and was ejected and then another yankee pitcher came in and picked the guy off first and then threw a perfect game do you know who that guy was ernie shore did that yes there you go. yes so that was amazing let me just finish the bunt thing here okay <laughs> we don't bunt and i don't miss the bunt because no one knows how to bunt anymore to ask somebody how to bunt when they've never done it before is stupid they can't do it and it's a really difficult skill i make way too much how how baseball how difficult the game is to play but dan asked me on the air like two years ago if he could get a bunt down against garrett cole (laughs) crazy you could try a thousand times and you would never put a bunt in play against garrett cole first off now you're facing him as now you have no way to get out of the way if he decides to throw one at the middle of your forehead. Now he's going to kill you with a pitch if he decides he can. So I say bunting is a very difficult skill. And if you don't practice it, you're not any good at it. But I grew up at a time when Rod Carew could bunt like no one else. Brett Butler is one of the great bunters of all time. And he told me once, by the way, 49% of the time that he tried to bunt, he was successful. Only 49% of the time. So when he would go to D. Gordon and say, you need to bunt more because you're so fast. D. Gordon said, I'm not giving up an at-bat here if I make it out. And Brett Butler said, well, I got on 49% of the time when I bunted. Would you take 49% with any at-bat? And D. Gordon said, well, of course I would. So he said, well, you should bunt more. That's what's happened to the bunt. No one knows how to do it anymore. And it's a really difficult skill because the – the barrel of the bat is about this big now if you bunt properly. And you're supposed to square up a pitch from Garrett Cole at 98 up in the strike zone with this much barrel. Good luck. All right, so I have to tell this story real quick. The late Harris Whittles, who was a comedy writer I worked with who tragically died at a very young age um, of a drug overdose. Harris liked to brag a lot about what he was capable of. He was five, six and a half and slightly pudgy. Stugatz. He, he's Stugatz, he it sounds he's, like. He's this very is... Stugatz. In, in his demeanor and his shape, he was very Stugatz. So he he once claimed that he could juke a member of the Lakers in gameplay and hit a three-pointer. <laughs> and then he claimed that he could hit 200 in the majors. <gasps> he hadn't played. He hadn't played. Baseball. Cody says he, that Cody says Cody yeah. thinks he can hit something like two. Cody who's 65 right. bleeping years old thinks he can hit in the majors and like yeah. hit a buck 50 or 200. 
he used to do this just to rile me up and, and but he also was very a confident guy and kind of believed it so same brandon mccarthy uh who, had, who i had become friends with i text i was like will you face 25 pitches from a major league pitcher and if you get we'll say if you get five of them into the outfield you will win your bet right and he was like great let's do it so i texted brandon i was like will you do this in the off season and he said absolutely and then harris was so confident that he was going to win this bet that i started to worry i started to think like because he wasn't a bad athlete he was pretty coordinated and whatever but i started to worry and so I, quietly i texted brandon and said there's no way he's going to hit five balls into the outfield right and brandon said I will throw him one curveball. He will start crying. The bet will be over. <laughs> and so we had it. Sadly, the rest, the, the story doesn't end well because it was, we had it all set up for the off season. We were going to film it. We were going to do the whole thing. And it was the year that Brandon got hit in the head with a pitch right before the playoffs when he was oh, in Oakland. No. And we had to call the whole thing off. But Brandon's confidence that a single curveball thrown to a mortal human being would end any question about whether or not this was possible I was like, oh, yeah, right, right. This is these guys. Brandon doesn't didn't throw super hard, but 92 to a normal human being uh, with any movement on it. Terrifying. There's no chance. Terrifying. Yeah. First time he buzzes the tower. You're right. The guy poops in his pants and <laughs> in the box. It's that simple. I've asked this question to a thousand different people. I asked this to Justin Verlander. I get 100 at bats. OK, in the major leagues against you. How many? And I, that's the end of the question. I don't even get any further. He goes zero. I said, you haven't heard any of the, the rest of the question. He goes, doesn't I matter. The answer is zero. And you know what? He's absolutely right. The answer is zero. If it's a competition, Mike, Dan, you, me, none of us is going to put a ball in play. No one is going to put a ball in play (laughs) in 100 pitches against a major league pitcher if he decides you're not going to put a ball in play. It's that simple. Dan, I told you Jeff Conine had a buddy who said, I want to catch Rob Nen. Mike, remember Rob Nen? He threw 100, and it was a violent 100. So Conine's friend, who was a golfer, not a baseball player, said, I think I can catch him. So Conine says, you couldn't catch him. He would kill you. So he goes, come to the picnic today with me today, Conine said. And he said, I'll throw to you. And if you can catch me, then maybe we'll put you in some gear and you can take a shot at Rob Nett. So Conine tells me the first pitch he throws to this guy at the picnic is like 75 miles an hour. And he said, and I broke his watch. I hit him right here. That's how much he missed the guy. And he goes, if I hadn't broken his watch, I would have broken his wrist. This is the most difficult game to play and a massively dangerous game to play. The most underrated part, the separator, is the danger involved. I have a beef with Rob Nen, which is that if he hadn't inexplicably spelled his first name with two Bs, he would be second all-time for shortest name of any major leaguer because it's Mel Ott, and then the the all-time leader, I think, is Ed Ott, Mel Ott's son, and Rob Nen would be second, tied with Mel Ott for only six letters in his name, except he put an extra B on the end of his first name for no reason. What the hell is that about? Although his last name is a palindrome. There haven't been very many major leaguers with a palindromic name, so that's good. But man, if he were Bob Nen, if he had gone by Bob Bob Nen, come on, Rob Nen, what are you doing? Go by Bob Nen, drop the extra B, you'll be a a legend forever with me and Tim Kirchin. Right. Well, when that's 
Francisco Salas, whatever his name was, pitched in the big leagues for years. Every time he pitched, I would make sure to check to see if he had a palindromic pitching line. And a bunch of times he did. It was like <laughs> one, zero, 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 one. One, so sure, yeah. One strikeout, and I used to always keep track of those things, and people would look at me like – what is wrong with you? Bob Nen, how great would that have been? Come on, he blew it so hard. Also, by the way, Tim, there's nothing wrong with you. We're the we're the normal people. Everybody else is weird. Mike Ryan just Mike Ryan just whispered something in my ear that I want him to say to both of you publicly. The overwhelming urge to stuff both of you in a locker right now. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it, they just geek out so much. We're out of time. Uh, we'll do it some other time because I wanted to get to an argument between you two on the best baseball movie ever made. Can you do that in five minutes? Do you have? Do you do you disagree or agree on what depends the best on, depends on what Tim's uh, answer is and whether he's right or wrong. Go ahead, Tim. All right. Well, I have to answer this in two ways. The greatest movie of all time is Field of Dreams. Sorry to be corny. My dad is my all time hero. Taught me how to play the whole thing, playing catch, all that. By the way, I never have a catch. You always play catch. That's my thing. OK, the worst ever is Mr. 3000. Just go watch <laughs> the end of Mr. 3000 when he comes back at the end to get his 3000 hit. And then he's the most unselfish player in the world when he drops a bunt in the last inning with a runner on second and one out. Like that's a sacrifice bunt situation. Nobody has ever bunted with a runner at second. Sacrifice is great. Let's get a guy to third with two outs. Running for a hit. It was so poorly done. That's the worst movie ever. And, and Field of Dreams is the greatest baseball movie ever. Okay. I think the greatest baseball movie ever is Mr. 3000. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't. It's terrible. Uh, no, I'm with you on Field of Dreams. I think that is the best baseball movie, corniness and all. But I think, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, Bull Durham has the most realistic actual baseball gameplay, maybe aside from like Moneyball or, or one of those kind of movies. The actual way that they shot Bull Durham, they go handheld with the cameras when the, when crashes in the box and they're right there with him and he the way that he actually goes through and at bat i think is the most realistic what it's actually like to be in a baseball game even though it's the minors and so i sort of give it points for that um the problem with bull durham is that tim robbins can't actually pitch like that it, it takes some of the the like if he if they had gotten a guy i mean tim robbins is great in that movie but if they'd gotten a guy who actually threw hard he's supposed to be randy johnson or something he's supposed to be or nolan ryan he's supposed to throw 105 with no control and tim robbins can throw about 45 miles an hour and so when whenever you hear about how what an incredible arm he has it kind of you lose some of the reality but now i'm with you i'm with you i think field of dreams overall i think is the best baseball movie if you're going to make a baseball movie about a pitcher, the pitcher has to throw athletically like a baseball player and tim robbins didn't and therefore yeah. Can't be the best baseball movie ever. Can't. It's kind of the only really bad thing baseball wise about Field of Dreams is that is that the actor who plays Kevin Costner's dad can't really throw either. Costner looks pretty good. Costner's an athlete, but at the end when he incorrectly says, "Do you want to have a catch?" according to Tim Kirchin, instead of "Do you want to play catch?" <laughs> uh, when his dad throws, he's definitely an actor who is not a natural baseball playing actor. 
Mike Ryan, do you want to stuff us in a locker again? Yeah, Is that so what's he, happening he, over there? So now you're movie nerds. He's so done with you guys. We're going to get out. I need to send you guys, both of you, I need to text you John C. Riley as a catcher chasing a foul ball and for the love of the game, just so that you can really laugh at something hugely inauthentic. Thank you for geeking out with us, guys. I enjoyed it. Anytime. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mike. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo. The tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo. Now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.